All right, if you've got notes, you can take those out. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Matthew 13. It's going to be the first passage that we look at together tonight. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the Bible, and we laid a foundation on the front end. We talked about the doctrine of the Bible. What is it that we believe about God's Word? We talked about all of these different doctrines. Uh, I'll just not read the list to you tonight and say that last night we had an elders meeting. We're in the process of going through the the ordination process with Jake. Uh, He's never been ordained, and so we've been working through that process. Last night we talked about doctrine, and the very first thing that we talked about is what do you believe about the Bible? And the things that we wanted to hear from him were the things on this list. We wanted to hear him talk about the Bible being inspired by God. We wanted to hear him talk about the Bible being inerrant in content. Those are foundational things that shape everything else that you believe or don't believe about God, about salvation, about eternity, about right and wrong. So we talked about this is what we believe about the Bible, and then we made a pivot And we've been talking about how do we interpret the Bible? How do we make sense of the Bible? When we crack it open, how do we make sense of the things that we find on the pages of Scripture? And we've come through all these topics, and tonight we're talking about parables. Parables are a famous part of the Bible. Uh, I would dare to say that even a lot of unchurched people have some understanding that Jesus in the Bible taught in parables. It's just sort of a common thing. I think it's also common when people think about parables to equate those with other types of short fictional stories that maybe they don't need to be equated with. And I'll give you just one example of that, and that would be a fable. How many of you have heard of Aesop's fables? Okay, Aesop lived a long, long, long time ago, like 2,500 years ago, ancient Greece. He was a slave, uh, which didn't mean exactly what we think it means in our American context, but he was a slave and he was a storyteller and he uh, is remembered as the teller of these fables. And a fable is essentially a short fictional story. Usually the main characters in a fable are animals and they're anthropomorphic animals. They're walking and they're talking and they're having conversations and they're wheeling and dealing and they're doing smart things or they're doing foolish things. And so sort of like a Disney movie playing out right in front of you. And in a fable, there's usually a a short plot line and then there's some sort of morality, ethical wisdom lesson that's taught. And at the end of a fable, there's usually a short little punchline, just a little catchphrase you can tack on to the end that's the main point of the fable. And so these were gathered together for the first time in the the late 1400s. And they've been published over and over and over again. And you're probably familiar with lots of them. I'll just mention three of them uh, by way of example. This is one of Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare. Tortoise and the hare. Let's have a race, the tortoise and the hare. The hare says, this is going to be the easiest race ever. He takes off. He's so far ahead. He's bored. He says, I'm going to lay down and take a nap. The tortoise just keeps plodding along one step at a time, dragging his shell down the racetrack. And eventually he passes the hare. He crosses the finish line. And the punchline you get at the end of the tortoise and the hare is slow and steady wins the race. Here's another one. I like this one, the lion and the mouse. The fable of the lion and the mouse is that there was a lion and he caught a mouse. He was going to eat the mouse. And the mouse said, whoa, whoa, Mr. Lion, you shouldn't eat me. 
you might need my help someday. And the lion said, what in the world are you talking about? Why would a lion ever need the help of a mouse? And he said, well, you never know. You should probably let me go, and someday I might be able to return the favor. And so the lion almost just to humor the mouse, let him go. Well, a few days later, the lion got caught in a net. Ropes were wrapped around him. He couldn't escape. He was caught in a hunter's net. And lo and behold, the little bitty mouse, who you can barely see on the left side of this picture, showed up and said, ah, now you need my help. And the little mouse chewed through the ropes, and the lion was set free. And the punchline at the end of the fable is that small friends may turn out to be great friends. They may prove to be great friends. One more that I think is valuable uh, to mention, the fox and the crow. There's a lot of foxes and a lot of crows in fables, and the, the fox and the crow goes like this. There was a crow sitting on a branch eating a block of cheese. I don't know why the crow was sitting on a branch eating a block of cheese, but that's what's happening in the fable. And uh, the fox comes underneath him, and he looks up at the crow eating the cheese, and he says, hey, Mr. Crow, can I have your cheese? Can I have some of your cheese? And the crow says, no. You can't have any of my cheese. And he refuses to turn loose of the cheese in his beak. And so the fox goes on his way. And the next day, the fox, who often in these fables is sly and sneaky, shows up and says, Mr. Crow, you have the most beautiful feathers of any bird that I've ever seen. Look how black they are. Look how sleek they are. You are the most beautiful bird I've ever seen. And the crow just sort of nods. And then the fox says, Mr. Crow, because your feathers are so beautiful, I would venture a guess is to say that your voice is the most beautiful voice of all the birds. I really wish I could hear you sing. And the crow, being puffed up in pride and loving this flattery, opens his mouth to caw, and the cheese falls down, and the fox takes the cheese, and he goes on his merry way. And the punchline is, don't trust flattery. Okay? So these are fables, and they're great. They're valuable. They make for great children's books. Uh, many times, fables are published, and they're published in children's books, and there's great illustrations, and the stories are memorable. Uh, if I just asked any one of you, tell me the story of the tortoise and the hare, you would have been able to come up with a version of it that is pretty close to the original, whatever the original was that Aesop told 2,500 years ago. These things stick in our brain. They teach moral lessons. They, they teach us things that we need to know in life. You need to know when people flatter you, you shouldn't get too puffed up about that, and you shouldn't always believe that. That. And you need to know, just keep plodding along and don't give up and hang in there. And you need to know, be nice to little people. They might be able to actually help you out someday. All of these are great things. None of these things are parables. And there's all sorts of little stories like fables that we might try to say, oh yeah, parables are like that, but they're not. And tonight what we want to try to do is be clear about what a parable is. On the pages of the New Testament, from the lips of Jesus, what is a parable? And then secondly, how do we actually make sense of it? So let me give you a few quotes just to start off. Robert Stein, perhaps the best known and most famous literary form found in the Bible is the parable. When I start saying there's different genres, they have different rules of interpretation, parable is one that most of you would have been familiar with. Next, this is from Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard. The stories Jesus told, such as the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the Sower, rank among the most famous and popular parts of all Scripture. And then Rob Plummer says this about one-third of Jesus' teaching 
is in parables. That one-third may seem a little bit low to you. You may have thought, if I had asked you to put a number on it, you may have put a higher number on it, thinking, well, didn't Jesus usually teach in parables? Well, he taught in parables a lot, but he also preached sermons. And the sermons that he preached, as they're recorded on the pages of the Gospels, tend to be pretty long, and the parables that he told tend to be pretty short. So when you look at all of his teaching and you crunch the numbers on it, you end up with about a third of it is in parables. So what is a parable? Sometimes people use this definition of a parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That sounds nice. It's short. It kind of has some rhythm to it. It just rolls off the tongue. But it's really not the best definition for a parable. They are sort of earthly stories, and they do sort of have a spiritual application. But that's not the best way to think about a parable. The Greek word for parable means something set alongside. It's almost as if you hold two things up for comparison. And you're looking at these two things to see how they're similar and what you can learn about one from the other. So most basically, a parable is a comparison of two things. Two things. Sometimes that comparison is very short and it's like an object lesson. For example, Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's a very short parable. There's a little bit of a plot to it, but not a ton of plot. It's basically a simple object lesson, a simple comparison to say the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like this. Sometimes it's an object lesson. Sometimes the the comparison point is an extended story. When you think about the story of the Good Samaritan that we read just a moment ago, it's a longer story. There's more characters in the story. There's a crisis moment in the story. There's more of a plot line to the story. Both of those things, the short object lesson and the extended story, count as a parable. Parables contain a fictional story with characters and a plot The the parables like that should not be interpreted like a historical narrative. What I'm saying to you is when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, or when you read the parable of the prodigal son, or you read the parable of the sower, you just need to understand Jesus is not telling you, hey, this really happened. That's what historical narrative is. We looked at historical narrative in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's just the author saying, this is what actually happened in space-time history. It's really fact. It actually occurred. That's not what a parable is. And it's not Jesus being dishonest. It's just a form of teaching where everyone understands. He's telling us a story, but it's not a historical story. And so we don't necessarily interpret it that way. One of the things I want you to understand is that parables contain comparisons that break down if you press them too hard. So you can press the comparison and you can think, okay, let's try to think this comparison through. But if you push too hard... The comparison oftentimes tends to break down. For example, Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. What did he do next? Did he call the police and say, hey, I found a treasure? Did he find the owner of the field and say, hey, you have a great treasure in your field? 
No, he actually covered it up, which makes you wonder in the first place, why was he digging around in somebody else's field to begin with? It's kind of a strange thing to do. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and then he bought the field, presumably not telling the owner of the field, by the way, there's a great treasure buried in this section of your property. If you press it too hard, you end up saying, should we be deceitful in our pursuit of the kingdom of heaven? That's not the point of the parable. You're pressing it too hard, right? It's a simple comparison. It's like a great treasure that you stumble across, you find. And it's such a great treasure that you in your joy would be willing to give up everything and anything in order to obtain that treasure. That's the simple comparison being made. You don't press it and keep pressing and keep pressing to where you say, in your pursuit of the kingdom, it's okay to be dishonest and to go dig around in other people's fields and to lie to people about legal transaction and property transaction. That's not the point. That's not the point. So we don't press it so hard that it begins to break down. One of the things you need to understand is Jesus regularly used parables to teach about the kingdom of God. In Mark and in Luke, he often talks about the kingdom of God. Matthew prefers the term the kingdom of heaven. And some Bible scholars think that in the gospel of John, where you don't find Jesus talking about the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, you do find Jesus talking about eternal life. And some people would say there's sort of a correspondence between those ideas. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and then in John, we're talking about eternal life. He's talking about the kingdom of God. So look at Mark chapter 1. I just want you to see how Mark sets up his gospel. Mark chapter 1. Verse 14, after John, as John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the word gospel shows up twice. Jesus is talking about good news. He's calling people to turn from their sin and to believe this good news that he's proclaiming. And all of that, Mark says, centers on this idea of the kingdom of God. A lot, a lot, a lot of the parables directly connect to this idea of the kingdom of God. We could do a year-long Wednesday night study on answering the question, what is the kingdom of God? That is not a simple answer when you start digging through the pages of the Bible. Let me give you one simple quote from George Ladd. He says, the kingdom of God is his kingship, his rule, and his authority. That's what the kingdom of God is on the pages of the New Testament. Now, that may sound pretty simple, but let me just throw these ideas at you. There was times when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, and he said, it has come. I'm here. I'm the king. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is at hand. That's what he just said in Mark 1 kingdoms here. There's other times he talked about the fact that the kingdom of God was coming in the future, which sort of made the disciples scratch their head and say, well, is it here or is it coming? And Jesus said, yeah, that's exactly right. You got it. And then there was times where he told his disciples, hey, you have entered the kingdom. And they kind of looked around and said, well, it looks like we're in Galilee. I don't know. And he said, no, you've entered the kingdom can't see it, but you're in. And then there's other times he said, at the end, in the final judgment, you're going to enter the kingdom of God. 
Again, they looked around and said, we thought we were already there. And he said, well, you are. But now you're saying we're going there. That's exactly right. This is a complicated topic when you think about the kingdom of God. Most basically, it is God's kingship, and it's his rule and its authority. It's like eternal life. If you're a Christian, you have eternal life now. You have it. And you'll get it. Both. You already have it, and you will get it in the future. That's sort of the idea with the kingdom of God. And you've got to understand the complexity of that when you're reading Jesus' parables and you're trying to make sense of them. Again, we're just going to table that. Maybe we'll revisit it some other time. Why did Jesus tell parables? This is one of the most important things you've got to wrap your mind around. This is straight from Jesus himself. Jesus told parables to reveal the truth and to conceal the truth. And I think a lot of the time when Christians talk about Jesus teaching in parables, our initial thought is, oh yeah, that's how Jesus put the cookies on the lowest shelf for everybody. They were just a bunch of dumb peasants. They really didn't know anything. They didn't have critical thinking skills. And so Jesus, accommodating himself to those simple, primitive people, he just told them these basic little stories. Here's the reality. Jesus taught in parables to reveal truth to people and to conceal truth to people. And we got to be done with the notion that first century people were dumb people. They were not dumb people. They were pre-modern people. They weren't dumb people. They were capable of thinking about things and wrestling with ideas. They didn't need Jesus to dumb it down. Jesus is teaching to reveal and to conceal. So look back at Matthew chapter 13. I just want you to hear this straight from Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them. That's to the crowds without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And you might notice that there's a little footnote there at the end of verse 35. And if you go down to the bottom, the reference is to Psalm 78. So you go back and look at it later. Psalm 78 is written by a man named Asaph. And in Psalm 78, Asaph is talking about the importance of one generation passing down the faith to the next generation. You have got to teach the next generation the truth about God so that they can teach the next generation the truth about God so that they can teach the next generation. And the point in Psalm 78 is you've got to teach it in a way that's clear, that people can understand it. You're passing it down to children. They're going to grow up, and they're going to pass it down to children. And Matthew quotes that verse, and he says that's one of the reasons Jesus taught in parables, because he wanted to communicate the truth about who God is and what the kingdom's like. He wanted to pass down these truths so that people could get them. Now look at Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. You, the disciples, get the secrets. Them, the crowds, they don't get all the secrets. To the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, and you can read how Jesus goes on to quote a passage from Isaiah 6. If you go back and look at Isaiah 6, it's this great story of Isaiah sees the Lord and he says, woe is me. And the Lord takes, sends the seraphim to touch his mouth with the coal and atones for his sin. And then the Lord says, who's going to go for us? Who's going to speak? And Isaiah is excited and he says, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Pick me. And God says, great, you're the guy. I just want you to understand that the things that I tell you to say is what you're going to say and no one's going to listen. Is going to be like talking to the wall. They're not going to get it. At which point, Isaiah probably wanted to pull his hand back down and say, no, I don't want that job. I don't want to go talk to people who aren't going to listen. But that's the passage that Jesus quotes here. Why do I teach him parables? It's because when I teach him parables, I give you the secrets and I don't give them the secrets. And they hear, but they really don't hear. And they see, but they really don't see. Both of those ideas are right there in Matthew 13, mashed together. Why did he teach him parables? To reveal the truth and to conceal the truth. Here's how you can think about this. Sometimes Jesus' parables were concealed in their meaning. In their meaning. So when Jesus gave the parable of the sower, we read that the disciples come to Jesus later and say, Jesus, will you please explain that to us? Because we don't have a clue what you're talking about. And Jesus sits them down and he walks them through the parable and he says, okay, this is this and this is this. The crowds didn't hear all that. Sometimes the meaning was withheld from certain people. Sometimes Jesus' parables were concealed in what you may call acceptance. You can look at Mark chapter 12 as an example where Jesus told a parable against, about the Jewish leaders. And when he got done telling the parable, Mark says they understood that Jesus was talking about them. He understood exactly what Jesus was saying, and rather than repent, and rather than say, Jesus, we don't want to be the bad guy in the parable. Jesus, we are on the wrong side of things. Jesus, we understand what you're saying. Please, what do we need to do to make this right? Rather than all of that, they rejected it and said, let's kill him. So it's concealed. In meaning, sometimes. In acceptance, sometimes. So, what do we do? How do we make sense of parables? How do we interpret them? Let me give you a few thoughts here. Sproul says, of all the various literary forms we find in Scripture, the parable is often considered the easiest to understand and interpret. We think it's the easiest. We think, well, that's why Jesus taught him parables. He was such a great teacher, and he just made it easy for everyone to understand. But from Jesus' own lips... He says, I'm actually teaching this way so that some people don't understand. So maybe our assumption here is a little bit off. Blomberg says this, at first glance, the parables appear familiar and straightforward, but thoughtful students soon realize they have fallen into a quagmire of interpretive debates. And in this Blomberg book, he quotes a guy named Thomas Long. I love this quote. Preaching a parable is a novice preacher's dream, but an experienced preacher's nightmare. On the surface, you think, well, this is great. There's a treasure box in a field. That's easy. I got it. But then you start thinking about it, and you think, what is he really saying? 
how do I think through this? How do I apply it to somebody's life? There's, there's some tricky things here. How do we interpret the parables? For long periods of church history, the only way that people interpreted parables was allegorically. We've talked about allegory a little bit a few weeks back. But this was super, super, super popular with parables for hundreds of years of church history. We read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me show you what an allegory of the Good Samaritan looks like. You pull out every character, every detail, every part of the story, and you say, this really means that. The man going to Jerusalem. It's really not a man going to Jerusalem. That's Adam. I don't know how clear and obvious that is when you read the story itself, but that's what you do with an allegory. You find some other meaning. Jerusalem, he really wasn't going to Jerusalem. He was headed to paradise. Jericho is not really Jericho. It's the world, the robbers, all the way down, okay? Here's what's interesting about all these allegorical interpretations of all these parables. See that right column, all the things that it really means? If you change interpreter, you shuffle that column and someone else has a completely different idea of what all the different parts of the story mean. No one really ever completely agreed on what all the details were. So when you think about these allegorical interpretations of all these parables, let me give you maybe the most intellectual quote you will hear all night long, maybe all week long. This is from the great Martin Luther. He says, Interpreting the parables allegorically is silly, amazing twaddle, absurd, altogether useless. That's his take on the allegorical interpretation of parables. It's just silliness. It's just a game that these people were playing to make whatever point it was that they were trying to make. So here's a word of caution, okay? I think this is a helpful word of caution and then I'm going to give you a counterpunch to what I'm about to show you. Okay, this is Sproul. And he's talking about, uh, do I have this quote up here? There it is. Sproul says this. Don't do allegory. He says, the safest and probably most accurate way to treat the parables is to look for one basic central point in them. As a rule of thumb, I avoid all allegorizing of the parables except where the New Testament clearly indicates an allegorical meaning. So he's saying, look, there are times, parable of the sower, where Jesus explains different pieces, and this does represent this. And if Jesus says it, then you follow it. That's great. But he says, you don't just have free license to make up whatever you want. And Sproul says, when you look at a parable, instead of finding all these crazy hidden meanings, you ought to look for one central meaning. That sounds a little bit more restrained. There's just a little bit of a problem with that. And the problem comes in this next quote I'll show you from Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard. They say, you know what? Not all the parables, especially the longer complex narratives, yield a simple unified lesson so easily. If you're just going to say, what is the one thing this parable is teaching me? These guys are pointing out the obvious fact. That's kind of hard to narrow it down to one specific thing sometimes. So this is kind of tricky. What do you do with parables? Do we interpret them allegorically? Well, that just seems silly, right? Do we just find one single point? Well, that's maybe easy on the short ones, but it gets kind of hard on the long ones. Uh, how do we interpret these parables? Let me give you a few rules. And as I give you these rules, this is what I want you to be thinking of. I want you to be thinking of Luke 15, 
and the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm going to give you these rules, and we're going to reference each of them to Luke 15, and then our ending is going to be just to read Luke 15. So rule number one, you've got to determine the context of the gospel narrative when Jesus told the parable, meaning you cannot just pull the parable out and then interpret it however you want to. You've got to read the actual gospel. So that's why when I said we're going to read the parable of the Good Samaritan, we backed up and read about Jesus talking to the lawyer. If you don't understand the conversation with the lawyer, you can't really certainly make sense of the parable. You've got to know what's going on. The same thing is true in Luke 15. Verse 1 says, The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. If you don't understand that dynamic, you're not going to be able to understand the parable of the prodigal son. You've got to know what was going on when Jesus told the actual story. There's a lot of parables in Matthew 24, 25, 26. You need to back up to Matthew 24 and figure out what started the whole conversation off in the first place. You got to know the context within the gospel. Okay, secondly, you got to determine the subject matter of the parable. This is sort of like saying, what's the topic? What are we even talking about? What realm of Christian doctrine, Christian teaching are we even looking at? Here's some of the possibilities. These come from James Boyce. He wrote a really great book on parables. He says there's kingdom parables, kingdom of God. There's salvation parables. That's Luke 15, by the way, parables that talk about salvation. There's wisdom parables. There's parables about discipleship, meaning what does it mean to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus? And there's parables about judgment, the final judgment. And he's gone through all the parables in the New Testament. He says, you can put all of them into one of those categories. So when you're trying to make sense of it, we're looking at Luke 15, and we read, okay, there's a a shepherd who goes after a sheep and saves the sheep. And then there's a woman who lost a coin, but then she finds the coin. And we get into this stuff about the man and two sons, and we understand, okay, we're talking about salvation here. And once you determine that's the topic... That's the subject matter. You're going to try to stay in that lane when you think about what does it actually mean. We're not going to try to jump out of that lane on a salvation parable and then say, well, really, this is about the final judgment. No, he's talking about salvation here. So you've got to try to stay in that lane as best you can. Okay, next, be careful with details. This is especially a caution in longer parables. Just be careful with the details. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, you would be amazed what people think about the two denarii that he gave to the innkeeper. Well, that's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, that's the law and the gospel. Well, that's this and this. People come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. I, I think it's just a detail in the story. He gave him some money. In the parable that we're about to read, Luke 15... When the prodigal comes home, the father gives his son lots of gifts. I don't think you're intended to try to decode all those gifts. I think he's just saying he was glad that his son came home and he gave him gifts. He was happy to see him. He loved him. You don't need to decode all those things. They're just sort of details in the story. Okay, next, look for stock images. 
This is pretty helpful when you're looking at parables. It is not just ironclad, fill-in-the-blank type stuff, but it really is pretty helpful. Stock images, father, master, king. Usually when you read a parable and it's talking about father, master, king, the reference is back to God. It's teaching you something about God. Usually when you start talking about the sun or a vineyard or a vine or a fig tree, usually in those parables you're thinking about Israel, God's people. Usually when you start thinking about sheep, this is where you come in. Dumb, bleeding, helpless sheep. That's us many times in the parables. The harvest There's parables that talk about the end of the age being like a harvest. It's talking about the final judgment many times. Uh, A party. We're about to read about a party in this parable. It's talking about salvation and eternal life and being in the presence of the Lord. So watch out for these stock images, these big ideas. Next, focus on a main point for each main character. I would just challenge you if you like to follow up these studies and read some of these passages I've given you. Read some of these longer parables and pay attention to how many of them have three major characters. Not all of them. Some of them have two. Some of them have one. But a lot of them have three major characters. So there's a parable uh, in Matthew 25. One of the major characters is the Son of Man. One of the major characters are called goats. One of the major characters are called sheep. There's three major characters in that story. The plot line revolves around those three characters. When you're taking away your interpretation, what does it mean? You probably ought to think, what what does this parable teach me about the Son of Man? What does this parable teach me about the goats? What does this parable teach me about the sheep? So major characters, a major point for each one. We'll see that in Luke 15. There's a father. There's an older brother. There's a younger brother. Now, there's some other people involved, but those are the major characters. And when you think about this parable, it's so complex and involved, you can't boil it down to one thing. And so you think, okay, what does it teach me about the father? What does it teach me about the older brother? What does it teach me about the younger brother? Last, fitting that this is last, remember the rule of the end. Just a rule for understanding what is important in a parable. It doesn't apply in all of them equally, but a lot of the times, not unlike a fable, the kicker comes at the end. The punch comes at the end. Remember the, the good Samaritan, the lawyer's talking to Jesus, and the question that eventually sparks the parable is, who is my neighbor? And at the end... Jesus asks a question, and the question Jesus asks is different than the question he asked. He wanted to know, who's my neighbor, which one of them out there? And Jesus asks a different question. He says, which one of those three acted like a neighbor? Well, you should be like that one. You shouldn't worry so much about who your neighbor is out there. You should worry about what it looks like for you to be a neighbor. That's the power of the end. Jesus is redirecting the whole conversation to make a very important point in response to this lawyer. That's true in Luke 15. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but at the end of the story, he's just in the party having a good time. And the real kicker at the end comes when the older brother shows up. And this older brother ties you back to the beginning, right? You understand the context of it. The Pharisees. 
and the scribes were grumbling that Jesus was welcoming sinners and eating with them and going to parties with them. And Jesus tells this story, and the end of it comes around like a whiplash and hits these guys right in the face. And the parable ends without an ending. That's a powerful way to end a parable. You don't even give them the end of it. And it's Jesus saying, it's really about you. And the ending is yet to be written. So you tell me how the parable ends in your specific instance. So with all that in mind, we'll read Luke 15 and then we'll, we'll end for the night. Luke 15. We'll start in verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. I have found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man he had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose. And he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. They begin to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother 
has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight uh, for the teaching of Jesus, for parables. Lord, we come to these short stories, these short comparisons, and we understand that these are not told so that foolish, dumb, uneducated people can understand complicated things. And Lord, we understand that we need your help to understand these things. Lord, we thank you for the power of these stories, for the way that they teach things in a way that we can easily remember. Um, We thank you for the way that they teach things in a way that we can see uh, complex truths in some sort of concrete way. And we thank you for the, the conviction that they bring to our lives. We read about this father in this parable, and we're reminded of your grace and your mercy. We're reminded that you welcome sinners back when they repent. Father, we read about this younger brother and we see a picture of ourself um, defying authority, living for our own pleasures, and just desperate when we come to the end of ourselves. Lord, we see this picture of the older brother and his stubbornness, um, his judgmentalism, and again, we likely see ourselves in this brother. Uh, We see the way that we look on others with a a judgmental spirit, uh, question their their repentance and question their worthiness as if our worthiness was a settled matter. Father, give us wisdom as we think about parables. Give us wisdom as we think about the Bible. Uh, We're thankful that you have spoken to us in this book, that we have a book that is true, that your words are firmly fixed in the heavens, that we have a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Lord, give us wisdom as we study, as we memorize, as we meditate, as we try to put our lives under the authority of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.